Welcome to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. This podcast brings you teaching and preaching from our archives, and you can find more resources, audio, video, and books at unionpublishing.org. My Father, by your Spirit now, please do business with our hearts. For those who are consumed with pride, humble us. Take our focus off ourselves and fix our focus on your Son. For those who are anxious, for whom self-dependence is a frightening thing, comfort them with all that Jesus has done for them, so that all of us, anxious or proud, may say with joy in our hearts, our only boast is Christ in his name. Amen. Okay, well, we uh, saw this morning something of who Jesus is, the revealer of an unexpected, fatherly, humble, self-giving God. We looked at him particularly as the revealer of a good God. Now I want to move on to look at him more as saviour. So we've seen who he is, and now the focus shifts a bit to more what he's done for us, what Jesus has done for us. Now, in a sense, you could say, what has Jesus done for us? Well, everything, because we're talking about the word of God here, the one who, the one through whom all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him, all things hold together from moment to moment. He sustains and upholds the cosmos. So what has Jesus done? Well, everything. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to narrow the focus a wee bit from everything to just his salvation. Just that. It's a small little subject. So we're going to look at what he's done for us in salvation. And here's the thing. Just as Jesus reveals God to be completely different to what we'd expected, so Jesus reveals a salvation that's completely different for who he is completely changes what he's done for us. Who he is changes what he's done. You see, the thing is, you could have an understanding of the gospel, and it's, it comes across as a Christian gospel, but it's not particularly Jesus-shaped, for example. See what you think of this as a gospel. God's the ruler. You've broken the rules, so God will punish you. But Jesus comes along, and he's punished in your place, so you can be forgiven. There's a lot that's kind of right there. But it wasn't a particularly Jesus-shaped gospel, was it? I mentioned him one. He popped up at one point, didn't he? He slipped in at one point just to buy the forgiveness. Thank you. You can go now, Jesus. It wasn't a particularly Jesus-shaped gospel. And that can be our danger. So what I want to ask is, what does the salvation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, look like? And I put it like that because... Well, Mark starts his gospel by saying that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John says that he wrote his gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Hearing the repetition? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Um, Paul says to the Corinthians um, that his point of his ministry was them so that you might... um, Know the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who we proclaim to you. He says that his gospel, the reason he's writing Romans, to sum up Romans, he's saying this is the gospel of God's Son, Jesus Christ, he says in Romans 1. 
So what I want to do is simply ask, what do those names mean? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And to press into what he's done for us, I want to look at those three names. What does Jesus Christ, the Son of God, mean? So I'm just going to press into those three names in that order. All right? So, first of all, Jesus. Do you know what the name Jesus means? The angel, um, when he's born, the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus for, do you remember? He will save his people from their sin. Jesus in Greek, Joshua in Hebrew, it's the same name. That's one to play with later. Jesus in Greek, Joshua in Hebrew, means, literally, the Lord is salvation. Quite a name. The Lord is salvation. That's what he's about. Saving people from their sin. And that's why when the angel announced to the shepherds the birth of Jesus, do you remember he says, Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For this day in the town of David is born a saviour. The Lord is salvation. That is good news of great joy. He comes for those who need help. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And I just want you to really put your foot onto that, to get a good toehold on that. The Lord is salvation. He's come for those who've messed up. He's come for the failures. I want you to get a good stronghold on that so that all the rest of what we look at is good news for you. You need to know Jesus has come for the sick. He's come for the weak. He's come for those who mess up like you do. He's come for those who need help. So if you're sensing you have some sense of your own failure, don't cover it up and think, I mustn't think of that. That is what Jesus has come for, to heal you from that. He's for you in that. Don't try to hive that that off from him. You see, I think, strangely, going to a church or coming to a thing like this can actually be a really difficult experience for people. In that, particularly, we're singing these songs, and I think it's very easy for us to sing. And you see people getting all excited about Jesus, and you're kind of thinking, well, I'm pretending, but let's be honest, I'm not wildly excited about Jesus. Or I am today, but I wasn't yesterday. And, and so it's so easy to think, well, I'm the odd one out. And so I know Jesus has come for sinners, but to be absolutely honest, I I can't really sense he's really for me. Because these people out here, these people around me, they haven't done what I've done. And they don't do what I do. As I look at myself, I, I know my sickness. I just feel I'm too sick, perhaps his grace and that is the golden opportunity for the accuser of the brethren you can almost hear the whisper despair and be damned you are a sinner a failure and yes you failed today didn't you you are sick but knowing that the Lord is is salvation, you can say, ah, thank you, Satan, for those encouraging words. Yes, I am sick, but Jesus is for the sick. He's come for people who are messed up. He goes to the most messed up. It's as you see that you're sick, as you feel unqualified, that's when you qualify for Jesus' help. If you don't see yourself as sick, I'm sorry, you don't really qualify. You clearly don't need him. If you don't have a problem. But if you're thinking, I feel guilty. Well, Jesus is for you. This is a gospel for you. The Lord is salvation. He really is for you in your real sin today. 
He's for you wherever you're at. What sort of salvation does he bring? Does he offer even a sicko like me? Well, let's think about the next name, Christ. The Christ or Messiah in Hebrew, again, it's just one's Greek, one's Hebrew, means exactly the same thing, the anointed one. The anointed one. For Jesus is the one anointed with the spirit without measure, as John the Baptist taught. The spirit is unlimitedly poured out on Jesus. Do you remember Jesus' baptism? The spirit rested on him, testifying to the world that he is the one always anointed with the spirit. Now, okay, that wasn't actually the first anointing in the Bible. There are loads of anointings. So in, um, in the Old Testament, you have uh, prophets, priests, kings. They'd be anointed, consecrated to their tasks. How? Do you know what they were anointed with? Oil. They're anointed with oil. And oil in the Bible is always a picture of the spirit. So, for example, take Leviticus 8. Aaron, Moses' elder brother, he's anointed to be the high priest with oil. And loads of oil is poured out on his head. So much so, the oil pours down from his head to his body. That's going to be key. It's a picture of Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, on whom is poured out not just oil, but what oil always represented, the spirit. The spirit is so poured out on Jesus, the head, that it flows down onto his body, his church, his people. Now, it is by the spirit that the father eternally makes his love known to his son. But, so just, just get that in eternity. The Father is constantly pouring out his spirit, the spirit of his love on his Son. But what then happens is that as the oil ran down from Aaron's head to his body, so the spirit runs down from Christ our head to his body, the church. We share his anointing. Does that make sense? The spirit that he's always anointed with, he shares with us. Jesus says, John 16, 14, he says, The spirit will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. Says Jesus. The spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. The spirit's job is to take what is Jesus's and make it ours. Just starting to see what it could mean for us that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one? It means that Jesus shares with us all, all that is his. The glorious, eternal Son of God shares with us all that is his. This is more than just forgiveness. He comes to share with us all that is his. This is more than just, you can get this idea of becoming a Christian. Do you ever think like this? That you become a Christian, and so you get forgiven, slate white clean, that was nice, but whoops, I've fluffed it since then. Right? And so, I was forgiven, but now I'm not quite so forgiven, so I need to go back for forgiveness, and let's hope I don't die before I ask for the forgiveness again. That's not how it is. It's not how it is. He shares with us all that is his. Let's press in to see what that means. Let's play with this idea of the head for a little bit more. Come with me to Colossians 1. Christ is our head. Okay, Colossians 1. And I think what I want to do, I want to go from verse 13 here. Colossians 1, verse 13. Okay. God 
Colossians 1.13, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's what it is to be outside of Christ, darkness. And you're blind if you don't see it. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, yeah, he's saying, yeah, in Jesus we get forgiveness of sins, but let's be clear, what we mean by that, it's not just you become a Christian and your slate's wiped clean. It's more than that. United to him, we united to him in his death. He died, I died. I suffered the punishment for sin in him. All our sin, our very sinful selves were nailed to the cross and died. But more. And and to see what more there is, notice what Paul does from verse 15. He presses in to look at who Jesus is. To see what we get He looks at who Jesus is. Verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What we saw this morning. He is the one through whom we know God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the Son is the one through whom the Father always accomplishes everything. He's the one through whom everything comes into being. Now verse 18. This is the real clinch point. Verse 18. He is the head of the body. The church. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn. Do you see how those two thoughts go together? He's the head, the firstborn. Those are very related ideas. We'll see why. He's the head, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So, he's the head, the beginning. He's the first to go through death, to the new life of the resurrection. So he's the head, the firstborn to the new life. He's the head. So where he goes, we, as his body, go in his wake. This is just how it is with the normal birth of a baby. In fact, do you mind, after lunch, do you mind if we talk about labor for a couple of moments? (laughs) Let's talk about labor. Now, in labor, a nine-month-old baby... The head is bigger, wider than the rest of its body. So it is a real struggle to get the head out. That's why it's called labor. It's a struggle to get it out. But once the head's through, the body comes. If this isn't too graphic. I'll, my my um, firstborn, Lucy, I, I was quite quite struck watching her being born the head it took a lot to get the head through that was very hard but once the head was out the body just came straight out it was just alarmingly quick if I can use that shocking image Christ the head through great suffering is the first one through into the new life of the resurrection We, the body, inseparably, unstoppably, are following him. Yeah? It cannot be stopped. He's gone through, we're going through. Where he goes, we follow. He's the firstborn, we're the nextborn. He's the head, we're the body. And what exactly is true of the head? Verse 19. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You don't believe that normally, do you? We usually tend to go, a little bit of godless, godness was pleased to dwell in Jesus. He was a little bit godlike. No, no, all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, and from his fullness we all receive. 
so. To say, I'm too sinful. To say, he won't want me back now. There's more sin in me than there is grace in him. I'm going to have to grovel my way back in. Is simple madness. There's more sin in you than there is grace in him. In him, all the fullness of this God of love and life dwells. Now, please don't mishear me. I know your sins are many. They are great. They are disgusting. But your sins, all your sins are piffling compared to the magnitude of his grace. On the cross, he did not just die to bear your sins. No, in his monumental act on the cross, light swallows up darkness. Life destroys death. There is so much more grace in him than there is sin in you. In him, it is done. Life has defeated death. It is finished. And as his body, we can enjoy all the fullness of our great head. Friends, thank you for listening to Delighting in the Trinity. We want to let you know about two new resources by Michael Reeves. The first is Authentic Ministry, Serving from the Heart. Authentic ministry is not simply a matter of mastering professional skills or of endlessly pouring oneself out in works of service. Rather, it springs from a joyful union with the heart of Christ. The second resource is Right with God, a little book on the center ground of the Christian faith, justification by faith. For anyone who does not know Christ or is lacking confidence in their salvation, the Bible has good news of comfort and joy. You can order your copy today at unionpublishing.org. Let me tell you a little story. It's a true story of a time during what was called the Great Persecution, uh, which was started by the Emperor Diocletian in the year 303. Now, the Great Persecution was partly called that because it was so very, very popular. And the the way, cleverly, Diocletian got it to be so popular was because he provided tax breaks if you handed in a good quota of Christians to be executed. So it's very popular to hand in Christians because you get money for it. One of those Christians who was handed in in the Great Persecution was a young man called Probus. And in an effort to get Probus to recant he was taken through multiple sessions of torture. And what would happen for him is they would drive heated nails into his fingertips, into the soles of his feet, into his sides. He was racked. He was flogged. And at the last, they began to chop him up with knives. And each time he was brought back for the next session of torture... This was standard practice. He was made to stand before the Roman official and he was asked his name. Each time he came back, and this was his answer Men call me Probus. My real name is Christian. Yes, that's it. Christian, that's my real identity in Christ. That's my real identity. That since the Spirit was poured out on Jesus and overflowed down to his body, since I was brought into his body, I have been defined not by my own performance, not by my own feelings of rubbishness or brilliance, I have been defined by my head, Christ, who is my identity. 
You'd know someone's identity by looking at their head, by looking at their face, right? You know my identity by looking at my head, Christ. You know a Christian's identity by looking at their head, Christ. My real name is Christian. My old sinful self was crucified with Christ and I have been raised a new creation. I've been born again through the resurrection to a new life and Christ is my identity. My identity is not grounded in how I'm doing. But in him. Jesus said in John 14, 19. Because I live, you also will live. Because I live, you also will live. I live and enjoy the fullness of God because he does. And he shares with me that. And so no condemnation now I dread. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head. And clothed in righteousness divine. So bold I approach the eternal throne. And claim the crown through Christ my own. And so Christians can say. My only boast is Christ. For my security. My very identity is Christ. I don't want to be treated by how I perform. I really don't. And by the one who matters, I'm not treated by how I perform. I'm treated according to Christ. Can I, can I use this moment then? as a time for a reality check for you and ask you a question. Here goes. Quite simply, is your only boast Christ? I know it was a trick question because I know what the answer is. Of course not. Of course your only boast is not Christ. You'd like to say it, perhaps, but it's not. So, the question that follows is, so what do you want to boast about? Really, day by day, what do you want to boast about? Your looks? Your brains? Your physical abilities? Your charm? Your wealth? What is it you want to boast about? And actually, it gets a bit more complicated than that, doesn't it? Because we're so good at this, we can not only boast at how sorted we are, we can also boast and find our identity in how messed up we are. And we'll boast about that, some of us. My friend, if you're specially beautiful, praise God for it. It is a reflection of his authorial beauty if you are particularly able and with each of these things I'm saying it I know to many of you many of you are particularly able if you're particularly able praise God for it it is a gift a a trickle from his wisdom and great ability but you would be a fool to make those things your identity Looks, brains, physical abilities can be ripped from you in one car crash. They could be ripped from you this afternoon. But if you'll have Christ as your only boast, you can lose nothing. You can have all the fullness of God as your identity and that is as sure as the father's love for the son the love that underpins the very cosmos 
And, you know, if actually for you it's your, your perceived own ugliness, your perceived own rubbishness that defines you in your own eyes, if actually your boast, your identity is how messed up you are, well, that too will be removed. Perhaps in part as the spirit heals and liberates you from the things that enslave you. And for sure and in full at the resurrection, when you will be raised up absolutely perfect, all your physical defects removed, and you'll be raised up unutterably beautiful. You will not be able to boast about how messed up you are then. There will be nothing messed up about you at all on that day when Jesus has had his way with you. For your joy, I say it. Don't place your identity on anything fickle or passing. Say every morning, my real name is Christian and my only boast is Christ Then you'll know lasting joy and security. He is your head. And thus, freely, you have what is his. Angus mentioned a couple of great books that are upstairs by Richard Sibbs. That most friendly old preacher of the 17th century. Here's something he said from one of those books. He said, often think with yourself, what am I? A poor, sinful creature. But I have a righteousness in Christ that answers all. Oh, I'm weak in myself, but Christ is strong. And I'm strong in him. I'm foolish in myself, but I'm wise in him. What I lack in myself, I have in him. He is mine. And his righteousness is mine. Which is the righteousness of God man. And being clothed with this. I stand safe. Against conscience. Hell. Wrath. And whatever. Though I have daily experience of my sins. Says Sibs. Yet there is more righteousness in Christ who is mine. Than there is sin in me. What a friend we have in Jesus. The friend of sinners. The Lord is salvation for us now. And he is the Christ, the anointed head, who enjoying all the fullness of God, freely shares it with his body. With those who will simply accept it. And then just to understand a bit more of precisely what he shares with us the last title the son of God now for eternity God the father found all his delight in his son he loved him continually poured out his spirit upon him the spirit of his blessing and so to be the eternal son of God meant being eternally, maximally, infinitely cherished by this loving father. And the sort of descriptions the Bible uses are that the son was in the bosom of the heart of the father. He was the apple of the almighty's eye. That is what the son comes to share with you as the head with his body. Come with me to Galatians 3. Galatians 3. Um, Verse 26. In Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.26, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
See what he's saying? He's saying, when Christ is your identity, when you're united to him, you become a child of God as he is the son of God. His identity is shared with you. Therefore, the spirit of sonship flows down from the head to his body. Come to Romans 8 to see a bit more of the same. Romans 8. And verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Do you see? The Spirit of sonship flows down, making us children. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, that's not being a Christian. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There's a God you can pray to, your Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And that really hits into the song we were just singing, doesn't it? About having a heavenly Father who we can take things to. That's what we've been brought to. We've been adopted There's the eternal son who shares with us his sonship, so we're adopted. Now, there are many, many different adoptions in the Bible. What I want to do is I want to take you to what is perhaps one of my favorite little adoption moments. Okay, so come with me to, can you guess what it is? You're right, it's Numbers 13. Numbers 13, let's do it. You're going to love this, Numbers 13. Okay, Numbers 13. Okay, what's happening is, uh, Numbers 13... Uh, Israel is just outside the promised land. You'd hope they're itching to go. And they send in 12 spies to check out the land. Yeah, to check out Canaan, see what it's like. And they send in one spy from each of the tribes, right? That's, that's where we're at. And um, what we've got in Numbers 13 is basically a list of the Israelite spies sent in to reconnoitre Canaan. Lists are always cool in the Bible. Ready. Verse 4, here we go. These were the names of the spies. Ready? From the tribe of Reuben, Shamua, the son of Zachar. That'll be one for you to do later. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Okay. That's, it's just verse 6 I want to do. Uh, Caleb, who we get to see is so very wholehearted for the Lord. Now, can you see what tribe is he from? Judah. He's of the tribe of Judah. Who is Jephunneh, though? Mm, that's what you're under, wondering, isn't it? He's of the tribe of Judah. Okay, that's sorted. We know where he's from. Who's Jephunneh? Flick to Numbers 32. Numbers 32. Verse... 12. Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. Now, the Kenizzites were pagan Canaanites. So back in Genesis 15, when Abraham's told he's going to be given the land of Canaan, the Lord tells him, I'm going to give your descendants the land of Canaan, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites. Uh, and the um, Amorites, the Hittites, and all that ugly bunch. So, Caleb is a Gentile who's joined Israel. He's ethnically a Kenizzite, but he's joined the tribe of Judah. Uh, j- just interestingly, um, he, um, he joins the tribe of Judah. You get to see, when Gentiles join Israel... Almost universally, they join the tribe of Judah, fairly obviously. In fact, if you look at early in Numbers, first couple of chapters, you see that the tribe of Judah is so much bigger than the other tribes, almost certainly because of the number of Egyptians and Gentiles that joined. Because, it, because we know in, um, many Egyptians feared the word of God and joined the Exodus. It wasn't just ethnic Israel. It was anyone who feared the Lord. And if you're a Gentile, okay, let's just imagine, okay, it's customs for Israel, and you're a Gentile, you want to join Israel. And I say, okay, let me just tell you, you want to join Israel, you want to be joining one of the tribes, so which tribe do you want to join? 
Let me just tell you about them. There's um, Judah, the royal tribe. Um, oh, and the Messiah is going to come from Judah. So if you join Judah, you could be an ancestor of the Christ. Or you could join Naphtali. Zebulun. Just which, whichever one you'd like. And so all of them, they join, surprise, surprise, Judah. So you see, Rahab does it, Ruth does it, they're all joining Judah. And so does Caleb. Caleb joins Judah. Uh, in fact, I'll check this out just as a little trivial pursuit question. There is one person in the Bible, one Gentile, who converts and joins Israel, who doesn't join Judah. One. If you can tell me who it is, maybe I'll give you a prize. If you can tell me who it is, you can figure it out later. Not now, not now, but in the break. See if you can work it out. There's one Gentile who joins a different tribe. See if you can work out who it is. That's my little test for you. Or we could make it an online quiz. We'll see. Anyway. But, and the other thing is, Caleb, sorry, Caleb's so cool. Um, The other thing, so Caleb, he's ethnically Gentile, but he's joined Judah. And so it's quite appropriate. His name, Caleb, do you know what his name means? It means dog. Because, well, the Israelites always thought of the Gentile outsiders. They called them Gentile dogs. And presumably he kept the name as a badge of honor. As it still is today in memorial of that very great man. Yes, he was a Gentile dog. Now he's of the royal tribe of Judah. And just interestingly, the only two people who actually are of the generation who leave Egypt and get into Canaan, who are the two men? Caleb, ethnic Gentile dog, and Joshua, the Lord is salvation. You know, a Jew and a Gentile walking in together into the promised land. Caleb, the dog, becomes a son of the royal tribe of Judah. It's a small picture of something we have in much bigger form. With us, we mere creatures, we vicious little lumps of mud, we God-hating, selfish, self-obsessed beings. The almighty Son of God comes from the halls of heaven and he takes our identity and is crucified, taking what we deserve. And he gives us his identity, calling us brothers and sisters. The almighty Son calls us brothers and sisters and he takes us in himself before his father so that we can be before the the throne and rather than simply cowering at our maker we can call him my Abba my father how great is the love the father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God that is what we are do you know um, you probably wouldn't guess it but I've got a slightly geeky streak to me. And uh, when I was young, I still do slightly, but when I was young, I used to love Greek mythology. And, um, And I always used to be quite envious of those demigods. You know, the heroes like Hercules, Perseus, you know, people like that. And do you know why they're demigods? They're demigods because they've got like, one parent will be normal, you, well, probably a princess or something like that, but one parent will be kind of normal, a normal uh, mortal, and the other parent will be a god. Yeah? And so you have Hercules, and his dad is Zeus. And I used to think, how, I mean, I love my dad, but I thought, how cool would that be? You could walk around the earth and go, yeah, my dad is Zeus. I've got a sun god looking after me. I've got the god of the sea on my side. I can go to sea and, hey, I've got the god of the sea on my side. Now I think, pah! Oh, they've got nothing on what we've got. Look, my Abba, my father is no mere territorial godling. My father is the Lord of hosts, the Almighty. He could take Zeus Poseidon any day. And he loves me. He loves his children as no Greek idol ever could or did. And knowing that this is our salvation just changes everything. 
knowing that we are the beloved children of the most powerful and tender father, it changes things. You, you can feel, oh, prayer isn't my big duty now. I've got a father I can go to, and he's for me and cares. Let me tell you something. Uh, one of the most fearsome theologians of the 19th century, Charles Hodge, wrote. He said, In my childhood, as far back as I remember, I had the habit of thanking God for everything I received and asking him for everything I wanted. If I lost a book or any of my playthings, I prayed I might find it. I prayed walking along the streets, in school and out of school, whether playing or studying. Do you think, oh, you religious little tick. (laughs) He says, I did not do this in obedience to any prescribed rule. It seemed natural. Why? For I thought of God as an everywhere present being, full of kindness and love, who would not be offended if children talked to him. I knew he cared for sparrows. I was as cheerful and happy as the birds. A kind father who bends all his sovereign power to care for his loved ones. That's what the Son of God gives us. And the Son of God pours out his Spirit on us to unite our hearts that we might become a family of brothers and sisters together. And I'll tell you, that really changes Christian work for me. As I seek to make Christ known as I hang around with Christians I don't just have colleagues potential competitors I have a brother I have a sister and that does change how I relate to them my brothers and my sisters We're not just a team. We're a family of the Father. There is just one thing that I find hurts there, though. Once upon a time, I didn't care about Christians at all. Who are they? But now, they are my brothers and my sisters. When I see a brother suffering, when I see one of my sisters crying, distressed. It now hurts me because I'm family. I want to bear their burdens and help them in a way I never did. And, you know, I find it just jars so much that the world is so unimpressed with these beloved of the Lord. And then I remember... He became despised and unimpressive so that he might lead them all through. Romans 8.19 The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Yes, the day is coming when this old wreck and all my brothers and sisters will be Revealed in power as the heirs of all, the royalty of the new creation. Despised now. But it does not yet appear how glorious they all will be. Paul goes on, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He's not saying that we haven't been adopted yet. Paul and others constantly say we are now the children of God, but it's not obvious yet. You can't see that in my body. One day, when he appears, you will see it. For we shall be like him, even our bodies healed and perfected from everything that ails them now. Our bodies shall be like the glorious body of the firstborn son of God. He shares with us 
all that is his. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is salvation. He is our anointed head. He is our identity. And he has made his father ours. He's made us the beloved children of God, giving us all that is his. And one day, that will even mean having a spirit-drenched, joy-filled body, free of sin, a body in which no pain can dwell, but only the joy of the Lord. What has Jesus done? He's shared with us everything. Let's pray. Our Father. Oh, that we can call you that with boldness. Your Son reveals you to be so good. Your salvation to be so sweet. Coming to sinners, making them your children, and offering them the world. You are glorious. Blessed be your name. Our Abba. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. Union is devoted to growing leaders and growing churches. Our School of Theology equips leaders for ministry. Union Publishing supplies them and their churches with quality theological resources and books. Union Mission supports and financially helps church planting and revitalisation. And Newton House, Oxford, invests in the next generation of theologians and scholars. Our vision is to see leaders and their churches the world over reformed and renewed in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out about our courses and learning communities around the world, to buy Union books, to discover support for your church plant, or to become a friend of Union and support our ministry, visit www.theola.gy.